Are you listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other platform where you can leave a rate or review? Do you like what we're doing? If the answer to all of that is yes, please consider quickly giving us a five-star rate. And if you wouldn't mind leaving us a nice review, we greatly appreciate that as well. Okay, let's do this. Hello, welcome to the Ghost of Harrenhal. My name's Simon. And I'm McKelly. Thank you for joining us for episode 61 of our chapter-by-chapter book review of A Song of Ice and Fire by George Martin. Today, we're discussing chapter 60 of A Game of Thrones. Apparently, I've forgotten the name of the book. A Game of Thrones, (laughs) John 8. You haven't had to say that very much, so, you know. Mm. Um, So we're going to chat about the chapter, and we're going to try not to spoil any future plot points for you. And hopefully, we're going to provide you with some entertainment while we do those things. We will summarise what's happened, discuss our thoughts on it, provide some useful background, compare it to the television show, indulge in a little pedantry, and cover some reader mail. Uh, Be sure to check out the show notes. They'll be handy for you if you are not reading along with us. They'll be handy for you anyway, but if you're not reading along, they're essential reading. Um, How are you? Okay. Pretty beat. (laughs) Oh, I'm beat too. I don't know. It's just been like a stretch of long weeks, it feels like. Uh Uh-huh. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. The um, we're 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 hot foot. We 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 have a we're not usually we have a week's worth of things to talk about, but we just recorded the uh, one year anniversary special yesterday. So right, um, <laughs> which which was very illuminating. A couple of things that illuminated were illuminated by doing that. One was how little we've improved, <laughs> and the other one was um, how. How reliant I am on the script, even for the things that I say every single week. Yeah, that was surprising. I I was surprised how tripped up you got by that. (laughs) It's incredible. I mean, I say those things every week, but I I mean, the script is there in front of me and I don't even glance at it. I didn't think. But take the script away and I'm like, "Uh, hello, my name is, uh, I don't know. You're like Ron Burgundy. Write down anything on the script and you'll just say it. <laughs> so yeah. So I, I hope I hope the listeners enjoy that because it was it was kind of fun to do. It was, it, the, what, what what was comical to me about it was the fact that we sort of we were we were kind of intending to talk over it with our humorous observations about how rubbish we were. Right. Yeah. But we ended up listening to it and like being engaged <laughs> by it and be like, oh, that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it was not as bad as I was anticipating. I was, I kind of wish it would be a little worse. One, it would have been funnier. Two, it would have showed how much better we've gotten. <laughs> true, true. Oh, uh, well. All right. So let's get down. In the, in the absence of anything humorous to say, let's get down to business with a quick recap of what John was up to last time we saw him. Last we saw John, he was overreacting to Alyssa Thorne's provocations after learning of Ned's arrest in King's Landing. He was banished to a cell, but was woken in the night by Ghost. The two of them found the dead body of Uthor had woken in the night and was trying to murder Lord Commander Mormont. The two fought, uh, as in John and Ghost, fought against and defeated Uthor at some expense. They set him on fire, but burned John's hand badly in so doing, and uh, that appeared to do the trick. Kelly, why don't we give him the summary of this chapter? All right. Well, 
John and Lord Commander Mormont discuss the aftermath of this uh, white attack that you just referred to. John's burns on his hands are worse than he had realized during all the chaos, but Maester Eamon thinks his right hand will fully recover apart from some scars. John didn't tell Mormont that he's dreamt about his fight with the reanimated Othor, but in his dreams the corpse has his father Ned's face. John doesn't know what that could mean, but he doesn't like it. Who wants to dream of fighting the reanimated corpses of anyone, you know, right. who, regardless of their face? Mormont is thankful that there were only two whites, but can feel that more are coming, a feeling shared by Maester Eamon. He fears a winter like none seen before is headed their way. John has received word of a raven arriving and asks Mormont for news of his father and sisters. The Lord Commander says that there is none. The news was of Sir Barristan Selmy's dismissal and the raising of Sandok again to the King's Guard. John thinks that with Selmy gone, there's little hope that Mormont's letter will be heeded. Mormont tells John that there is no further news of his family, but John already knows this to be a lie, as he received this information on the download from Sam. Mormont presents John with a sword, which changes the subject from the news of his family. Um, the sword has been rebuilt after the fire. It's a Valerian steel blade, but the pommel has been rebuilt. The Mormont bear has been replaced by a stark direwolf. It's big, and Mormont takes the opportunity to point out that it will take a man to wield it. He implies that John ain't there yet, but he needs to be. Mormont has more good news for John. He sent Alice a thorn to King's Landing with the hand of Jaffa Flowers. Mormont bring John, brings John back to Earth by demanding his supper. John leaves and his friends crowd around to see the new sword. They're excited for him, but he's still haunted by the terror of fighting Othor. Jeremy Riker and four other men were killed bringing down Jaffa Flowers. Later, Sam visits John, who assumes that Tarly wants to see the sword, but Maester Eamon has summoned John. The Maester is feeding his ravens, but wants to talk to John about his vows generally. He explains that the reason men vow not to wed and have children is because love is the one thing that can trump honor and duty. The Night's Watch have to be fully committed, but everyone there is a son, a brother. The vows don't remove all family loyalty. Eamon says that the day must come to everyone to choose between family and duty, and only the very few can do their duty under that choice. John doesn't think that Eamon understands, but the old man says that his own vows would have been tested three times, the third time quite recently, when he was too old to act anyway, but it didn't make the pain of his choice any less. Eamon recounts how Ravens brought news of the destruction of his house with his brother's descendants horribly slain. John realizes who Aemon might be, and the maester confirms that his father was King Makar Targaryen and his brother King Aegon. John is suitably impressed. Yes, who wouldn't be? So right. Aemon is a Aemon is a Targaryen. He is Aemon Targaryen. Good grief. Yeah. Yes, and and he's right. Even if you're in your nineties, hearing receiving those ravens must have been uh, very hard. Yeah, absolutely. When we get to that that section in the uh, chapter, I wonder, he, he mentions, you know, several things, and I wonder uh, what specific events he's he's talking about. But... Uh, the three? No, I mean, he talks about, he talks about, you know, ruin of his health, death of his kin. Well, that death part's pretty obvious. The disgrace and the desolation and... 
seems like some of that he's referring to Robert's Rebellion and uh, the usurping of the Targaryen throne, but some of it also, like the the disgrace might come from Aerys' actions in general as the Mad King. I wondered if it might also be Rhaegar's kidnapping of uh, Lyanna as Right? Well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. Like, but then he says some things in amongst all that that to conflict with that assumption a little bit, but we'll get there when we get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, so again, I think we, we've noticed this before. That the John chapters tend to be in sort of three acts. So we have this sort of uh, the initial interaction with him and Mormont, who are sort of like, uh, I think they lived through something together and that's formed a tighter bond between them. Yeah. Then he's sort of like hanging out with his buddies, and right. then there's his uh, interaction with uh, Maester Aemon at the end. Yeah, you're right, because a lot of the chapters don't have that kind of three-act structure. It's just like yeah. like Sansa's chapter when she was in the throne room was just her in the throne room watching the, the scene unfold. There wasn't three very distinct acts like we've been getting with these John chapters. Yeah, I think I think partly, uh, no disrespect to John, I think generally speaking, what goes on at, at, uh, uh, at the wall is just not as interesting. Now, sure, reanimated corpses, that's, that's a little bit more interesting. You know, things are happening. But but it's kind of like, you know, the corpse reanimated and he fought it and killed it. You know, it's like, you could have said that in one sentence. Yeah. It would have been kind of, you know, you needed to write a chapter around it. But So I think he, he has to sort of, like, build this up a little bit into this sort of, like, mini story each time yeah. just to keep the interest. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But but so Mormont obviously is grateful to John for saving his life. It goes without saying. Yeah. Uh, but he's uh, he's given him quite the gift here. And he this sure is, has. This is the Mormont's family sword that they've had for five centuries. Right. right. <laughs> I was thinking maybe like a promotion or like a weekend's yeah. vacation to Molestown, you know, <laughs> or, or clemency for the fact I was about to execute you for what you did earlier, you know. Right. <laughs> Because now you're just I mean, back to was... even par here, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. But um, but he he actually says we we didn't mention this in the summary, but he actually says that the, so the sword was was his. He gave it to his son Jorah, who when Jorah fled um, to Essos, he left the sword behind. Um, and I think we've mentioned this before that uh, the Mormont family is very girl heavy, right? Now, yeah, it's. Uh, the the lord the lord of the Mormons is Jorah's uh, Gia's sister. Yep, and she only has daughters. Yep, right. So there's there's no literally nobody who can wield the thing because it's huge. It is. Uh, yeah, he says it's half a foot longer than the sword he's used to wielding. So right. But so what, but what he actually what he actually says was that he he was so ashamed of getting so so his sister sent the sword to him so it could get some use. But he was yeah. so ashamed of the fact that his son had disgraced the family name that he sort of stuffed it away and forgot about it. And it was only when the fire burned down his apartment that it sort of revealed itself. Because whatever it was, everything around it burned, leaving just the Valyrian blade behind. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, he could have remade it himself. I mean, just, just kept the blade and maybe remade the, the pommel. And, and stuff so that it 
didn't remind him so much of what his son did, you know? Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, <laughs> maybe when he saw it after they finished fixing it up for John, he was like, you know, <laughs> it doesn't look anything like my old sword. I think I could live with this now. So, so another thing we skipped over is that um, um, another aspect of the story going on at the wall is uh, this continued absence of Benjamin Stark. Yeah. And, uh, Mormont reports that the last two rangers who were out looking for him have returned with no news. Yeah, and we missed, like, I don't recall us hearing about this latest um, searching party. I'm guessing that they went out because they found those two whites. They went out to see if maybe Benjen, Benjen's body or any of the other guy's body that were out there with them. Uh, was walking uh, around yeah or or at least laying around (laughs) but the the two guys are diwin and hake and diwin was the old ranger who went with uh who went with john and sam to say uh their vows and then after they said their vows he felt something off was in the woods and that's when ghost showed up with what's his name Uh, jay for flowers hand and then the other guy is hake and he's the steward who went with mormont to go see the bodies he was there during the whole inspection scene so that's who those yeah. two guys were. But they didn't find anything. So still no news on Benjen. Yeah, but only two whites, only two reanimated corpses. But Mormont says to John, I don't feel that's the end of it. My old bones tell me that there's more of those coming, you know, and yeah. that this is going to be a winter like no one's remembered before. And he also references the fact that, that they should have remembered. He says that at one point he says they should have remembered. The Night's Watch has been around for eight thousand years, and in there, clearly, he was saying that in their records there was talk of whites, and so because right. he actually he's actually talking about killing them with fire. That that was the way to kill them. Yeah, yeah, and, and that they, uh, had, I guess, that he had forgotten that they had forgotten that you would kill a white with fire. Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, if you have eight thousand years of history to read, <laughs> even focused history just on the on the night's watch that's a lot it is a lot yeah yeah you got to uh you got to get sift through a lot of uh uninteresting information to get to uh oh kill whites with fire okay that being said (laughs) that being said if you were reading the eight thousand year history of the night's watch the bit where the dead rose and fought you would really stand out it would yeah yeah it should definitely be in the highlighted uh version of the yeah. information. But Mormont yeah. says this... <laughs> amidst, amidst sort of like hundreds of pages of, oh, it's really cold. God, it's really cold. You know? <laughs> uh, Mormont says that this winter that's coming is is going to be worse than uh, anything that anyone has ever experienced. And I wondered if he was including the long night in that because we learned from Old Nan in one of the early brand chapters that the long night the winter lasted for a generation. So that's a long time. If it, if it's worse than that, they're really in for a serious mess here. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think, I definitely think it's destined to be on par with it. Seems like it. Seems like that's what, so, what we're being set up for here. Yeah. So, um, so the, the, the Raven, according to Mormon, the Raven only brought word that, uh, Barristan Selby had been fired from his job. Gregor Clegane had been elevated to the King's Guard and that, uh, 
some idiot had sent gold cloaks to arrest Varys and Selmy, <laughs> which ended predictably with dead gold cloaks and no Varys and Selmy. <laughs> yeah. What idiot could that have been? Uh, I, I feel like it more, I feel like we yeah. might know, <laughs> might have recalled saying, "What an idiot! Who's going to send gold cloaks after Varys and Selmy?" <laughs> yeah, you know, but um, like you said, that's all he admits to being in the letter. John knows he's holding back information from him. Uh, so we don't know. There might have been other news that he doesn't want to reveal to John, but this is yeah. the part he does reveal to him anyway. Yeah. And then Mormont says, um, you know, he's he's get, he's frustrated. He says, there's white shadows in the woods, unquiet dead in the halls, and a boy sits the Iron Throne. But yeah, from the from the Night's Watch perspective, I'm not sure exactly how much it would really matter whether Robert was on the throne or... Joffrey was on the throne. I I don't know that Joffrey would have done anything. I mean, I don't know that Robert would have done anything more than just empty out more of the dungeons. You know. Yeah. I don't know that he's yeah, going to march an army up there. We've had this discussion before that I mean, but but then again, Alistair Thorne is going down there, and when he dumps that hand on the table and it starts crawling around by itself, that might get the people's attention. Now. We haven't actually seen that happen, yes. I mean, as far as we know, the hand has laid still, but it's not decomposing, so it has that going for it. Right. Yeah, I I wondered if if that hand would do any good. I just I guess if it does start crawling around, it starts like acting like thing, <laughs> that probably would get some attention. But if he just brings him a hand in a jar, <laughs> I, I was trying to remember what character it was from the Adams family. Thing, of course, yeah. What Alice and Thorne needs to do is do a bit of a bit of a mummer's farce. He needs to get it out and then grab it to his throat. <laughs> ticket. They should practice that before he leaves. <laughs> but if that I can just see Alice and Thorne doing that. <laughs> yeah, he he seems like the type. There certainly. Uh, but if it just sits there in a jar, I just don't know that Joff's going to be the the kind to. To get too worked up about a hand in a jar, yeah. you know. Nor is Cersei. Yeah, a jar is the worst thing to put it in because that looks like you've intentionally preserved it. Right. Yeah. What you need to do is <laughs> just out of your pocket. Look, there it is. Not decomposed. I promise. True. Just yeah. pop outside. See if you see a guy with no hand. <laughs> <laughs> So I was interested to note that Mormont was so clued into the workings of the realm. I mean, because I mean, that's a, that's a quite a small footnote to what's going on in King's Landing, the Barristan and Selmy thing. Yeah, and yet he got n- notified of it. So it's it's interesting how clued in he is, even though the Night's Watch, you know, issue any involvement in the workings of the realm. Yeah, they they, they stay informed. And I wondered who sent him the letter because he specifically mentions that Pycelle has not responded to his letter. So I wondered if maybe Yorin is still in King's Landing and, you know, got news of this and sent the letter off to the Night's Watch. Yeah, that's plausible, yeah. Because, yeah, there, there, there is no indication of from whom it came. Yeah, they, they don't specify who, who sent the letter. The only thing they specify is that Pycelle hasn't responded to Mormont's letter yet. And actually, right. that's that's a concern John has that without Barrison Selmy on the small council, uh, that he's afraid that Mormont's letter uh, won't be heeded, and uh, 
what he's re- the letter he's referring to in case you may have forgotten is uh the letter that that Lord Commander Mormont promised John he would write to King's Landing requesting that Ned Stark be allowed to take the black and take come join black. him at the yes, wall. Yes, so you can yes. see why John might be concerned that that letter uh, not be heeded. And I also wondered if Lord Commander Mormont was a southern lord, if he was a lord from a southern house, if he might have more influence in King's Landing than being the former lord of Bear Island, such a small, remote island in the north. You know, if he was a, like the the former lord of a Crown Lands or Reach or Stanley's yeah. house, you know? Yeah, it, it, it may be less geographic and more to whom you owe, to whom you originally owed your fealty because he was a Stark man. So right. they have very little influence right now in King's Landing. If he had been from the Crownlands or the Stormlands and therefore a Baratheon loyalist, he might have had a, a more receptive audience down there. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a thought. Yes. And actually that makes me think about when he was complaining about someone being about a boy being on the iron throne Maybe he's thinking Ned was next in line to be King Regent for a while, and Ned being Ned Stark of the North and his brother being First Ranger, you know, they might have right, been absolutely, taken more yeah. seriously with Ned Stark. They, they would have emptied every dungeon, not right. just the one in King's Landing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So John feels that Mormont's hiding information from him by not telling him about uh, the news that Sam has given him, which is that Rob has called the banners together and they're marching south to fight the Lannisters in the Riverlands. Uh, John assumes that he's not being told because it's not his concern anymore now that he's taken his vows. Uh, but I think we think, I mean, it's, it's the same coin, just a different side, just a different way of looking at it. We think it's because Mormont's concerned that John will get distracted and actually break his vows. Exactly. If you recall, Tyrion asked for John to be one of the men that escorted him to Winterfell, and Mormont wouldn't allow that because he said his vows are too new. He he wanted to sever that familial tie there a little more completely. So you you could see that his fear of telling him of it, and it's actually kind of what's happened. John is very he feeling like a, a craven, you know that he's sitting up there at Castle Black doing nothing while Rob rides in defense of his father. Yeah. And and all of that is amplified by the fact that uh John is John is dreaming of rescuing Ned or 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 fighting Ned, I'm quite sure. <laughs> Depends on which dream, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, he daydreams. I mean, he re- he recalls that when he was young, he used to daydream about going to rescue his father and, and his father saying, you know, you've proven yourself as a true Stark and rewarding him with ice. And then, you know, John feels bad about that. Right. Because, because he, well, I mean, he knows that a bastard will never get precedence over the true bond. So, right. Yeah. So, but, so the feeling bad, I don't know. I guess, I guess he has loyalty to Rob. And so he feels bad about having daydreams of usurping Rob. Exactly. But it's a daydream, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so like he's plotting yeah. it. So right. I don't really think there's anything to feel too bad about it. But it, yeah. it's, it's when he's given Longclaw that, that he starts having these thoughts about ice. And I think really it's, it's starting to, to upset him because later when he's leaving and he should be in a, he should be in a really great mood. He got two 
fantastic pieces of news. He's been given this amazing Valerian steel sword, and his arch nemesis, Alistair Thorne, has been sent a thousand leagues away. But he says that his his hand hurts and that he can taste anger and he can't figure out, can't exactly point out what he's angry about. I think he's angry because he was just given a, a great sword, but it's not the sword he wanted. He's, right, he's right, angry right, because, right. one, he feels angry at himself, like, you should be more happy about this. I mean, you know, this is this is a yeah. great gift. Why are you upset? Why are you, why are you upset just because it's not the sword you wanted? And two, because he's a bastard, he knows he'll never get the sword that he actually wants. I think that's why he's yeah. angry. Yeah, and then compounded with the frustration of knowing that his family are in danger and and are marshalling to war, and he can't be part of it. Yeah. Even though he's now wielding a sword that could make a difference. Right. If if his hand could heal well enough for him to wield it anyway. Right. We'll be right back. Hello, friends. Are you ready to make some unforgettable memories? Well, if so, consider the Marriott Bonvoy program. Discover the perfect destination for your summer getaway and unlock exclusive deals on luxurious accommodations. With our affiliate partnership, you'll enjoy unbeatable savings and a seamless booking experience. Don't let summer slip away. Visit Marriott Bonvoy today and make this vacation season one for the books. Use our Ghosts of Heron Hall affiliate page to check it all out and buy Bonvoy points or give some as a gift. The link to our page is in the show notes. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed actually was, was there's quite a lot of sort of father-son interactions in this, although at no point does a father meet a son. There's, there's lots of uh, father-son talk, and particularly about the shame that sons can cause fathers, mm. because because Jorah, Geo Mormont talks about the shame that he felt because of Jorah's uh, uh, turning to slavery. Right. And then when Sam comes to uh, John, John thinks he wants to look at the sword, but Sam's like, uh, I've seen a Valyrian sword before. I, I have no interest in one. Right. He, he was he, once heir to Heartsbane, the uh, Tarly right. Valyrian steel sword. And and how he acted with the sword was one of the things that caused his father shame. You know? Right. Because <laughs> he was afraid of he was afraid of hurting someone with it because it was so <laughs> dangerous. And uh, then John and Ned, I mean, and jo- John has always been an excellent son to Ned, but John is also the source of all of Ned's shame. I mean, Ned has very little to be ashamed of. He's so righteous and upstanding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's got a that's got a way on John. He's got to realize it at some level that his presence brings shame in uh, some level of disrepute to his father. And but only but only in the eyes of people like his father. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, look at Robert Baratheon. He doesn't feel shame about his, you know, bastards everywhere. <laughs> True, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's only it's only because his fa- of who his father is that he brings him shame. But it's still got to weigh on him a bit that he's the source of the shame. That, that's that got to be a tough spot to be in. Yeah. But anyway, I still think it's a little bit rash giving this sword away. I mean, it's been a family heirloom for hundreds of years. And, and I just... Uh, I wonder if it should have like a rider on this, like say, after you finish using it, can you give it back to the Mormons because right. they're going to need it? You know? When there's a Mormont heir who can wield this sword, 
Could you please return right. it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, and that'll take a generation. By which time, John will have died out. I mean, it should just be like you know, the bequeath of this sword is back to the Mormons. That's yeah, all I'm saying. That's the thing. Like, I get that currently this sword brings shame to Gior because of what his son Jorah did. But in a hundred years, they're right. not going to remember what Jorah did, and they'll be like, "What happened to our Valerian steel sword?" <laughs> oh well. You see, I gave it to a guy because he did me a solid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one question I wanted to know what your thoughts on was how do you think Alistair Thorne feels about being sent to King's Landing? Because Mormont says, when he when he tells John that it's happened, he says, I did it because it's an important mission and I didn't want Thorne to feel like I was giving him a rebuke. Right. Yeah, and that's basically my my question to your question would be, is... Thorne smart enough to realize he's being sent on an errand on John's behalf. You know, if he if he is, then he's probably going to, uh, you know, not be thrilled with the idea. Right. The wounds are going to fester. Yes. If he's not, if he's not smart enough to realize it, then you know, hey, who wouldn't want to go uh, spend a, a little while in King's Landing versus being up here at Castle Black? You know, nice vacation. Yeah. Also, 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 how Thorn is from the Crownlands, and so I just wondered if he might linger or even possibly not return if he gets that close to his, you know, his home. Uh, his vows are not as fresh as John's, right? He, he's a seasoned man of the Night's Watch. He'll he'll be back. He will. Although, him. although the chief beheader of uh, people who break their vows is currently in the dungeon under King's Landing, so maybe it's the time to uh, right. abandon ship. Yeah, if you're going to run, run now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, so the the boys are all excited about the sword. They all want to see it. There's some laughing and joking with Pip and Gren as usual, and they uh, they make John show them the sword. John's not really into it because, you know, he's he's got these conflicting feelings about the whole thing. He goes to his room, he shows Ghost the new direwolf head on the sword, and Ghost looks, you know, like like a dog would look at a sword. <laughs> it, it's not food. Right. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I think we forgot to mention that the pommel has been turned into a white wolf with uh, garnets for his eyes, so it is uh, yes. modeled after yeah. Ghost himself. There you go. And um, so while Ghost and Sam are in there... Uh, the room Sam come no while Ghost and John are in their room Sam comes to visit and he's looking a little bit uh, uh, embarrassed and John figures out what it is he tells him Master Raymond wants to see him and John's like why does he want to see me you told him that you told me what was in that letter didn't you and Sam was like well he yes he sees things he's like yeah he's blind he doesn't see anything <laughs> So uh, there's other senses you John, can see with John. Yeah, John storms off, leaving Sam upset in his wake. Not for the first time, and uh, <laughs> he goes to see Mace Raymond, who is feeding the crows raw meat, just like like chum. Yeah, and just hurling this into the thing. So he he gets rid of Clydus, who's helping Aemon, and John takes over the the ghoulish duty of feeding the crows. Meanwhile, Maester Raymond. T- talks him through. Basically, 
yet another pep talk for don't break your vows, you know? Yeah, right, yeah. We we get it. Your loyalties are divided. That's reasonable. We don't say we, we, we don't wed and have children because that would be impossible to maintain our you know, our duty at all times. Right. But it doesn't stop us from being related to people. And when our relatives are suffering, our loyalties are divided. Yeah, it's a natural, I think he's trying to say it's natural and it's painful and you just have to deal with it. But he does say, I'm not going to tell you whether to stay or go, but he should because if he goes, then he is a a vow breaker, which is punished by death. So (laughs) he probably should tell him to stay. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you whether to stay or go, but if you go, you could very well have your head chopped off. But have you ever seen one of those Valyrian steel blades that you're carrying there go through someone's neck? Very, very painful looking. Um, so I, I wondered about the symbolism of the feeding of the crows as they have this conversation. You yeah, because yeah. Because Eamon's talking about all of the sort of death and destruction he's had to sit passively through. Right. And uh, uh, meanwhile, the crows are being fed as, the you know, Crows eating typically means dead bodies, you know. Right. I don't. I, this just struck me. I don't really. I don't really have a particular take on it necessarily. But John says to Maester Eamon that Lord Commander Mormont's raven likes fruit and corn, and Eamon says that's pretty. That's rare. Ravens are carnivores. They like meat, and they they like the taste of blood. But I recall that. Brand, the raven from Brand's dream kept ask, asking him for corn. Cool, so that's true. Yes, yeah. Maybe there is a, you know, maybe there's some sort of connection there. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it is Mormont's infernal raven. Right. In, yes. in Brand's dream. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, I mean, if I remember rightly, Brand used to feed the, all the ravens of Winterfell corn, and they, they could say corn they, in the same way that... Uh, oh, yeah, I definitely remember him bringing corn up onto the rooftop. When he was climbing. Yeah, I can't remember them, yeah. if they yeah. could say the word or not. Could speak, but. right. Yeah. But then yeah. Eamon asks him a, an interesting question. He says, he's trying to drive home this point about family loyalties and your vows that you've taken. And he says, uh, what would happen if your father had to choose between honor and his loved ones? And I thought, well, that's interesting timing for that question, because (laughs) about a thousand leagues south... We have direct evidence. (laughs) There's a guy sitting in a dungeon pondering that exact same uh, dilemma. Yeah, but but John's answer is is right. He would do the right thing. Right, yeah. Which isn't actually answering the question. Yes. (laughs) But uh, Eamon says, well, you know, he's one in 10,000 if that's the truth. If that's right, yeah. Yeah, and then he gives some examples of the Night's Watch members staying true, and he mentions that during the uh, Aegon's conquering, that the brother of uh, Heron the Black, Heron Hor, um, his brother was Lord Commander of the Night's Watch at the time, and he had ten thousand men at his call, and he didn't march; he he stayed out of it. And then during the Andal invasion, you know there was. They, the Night's Watch again stayed out of the, uh, you know, the fighting between the First Men and the Andals, despite the fact that their 
they were first men and their families and their homes were being destroyed by the Andals. So he does give some pretty good evidence as to uh, pretty good examples yeah. as to uh, the Night's Watch staying yeah. out of the. Of course, the, the one thing I would say there, I, I would say it is in many ways, it's easier as the Lord Commander to keep everybody out than it is for an individual. Yeah. If you're the individual, it's just on you. If, you, if you're the Lord Commander, you say, all right, we're marching south to fight. Everyone will be like, wait a second. <laughs> this That's is your not fight, what I not signed mine. up for. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But for an individual to, to sneak away to fight for his family would be... Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I can definitely see that. So, uh, Eamon describes the... the well, he doesn't describe the three times his vows were tested. He just describes the last time, which was the ruin of his house. Um, uh, and the the murder of his relatives. And these are his, his like great-great and great-great-great-grand-nieces and nephews, right? That's who we're talking about, basically. Yeah, his... So he refers to the death of his brother's grandson... Which so would, would be Ares. His... That would be Aegon's Ares. Aegon the Fifth's Great. grandson, which is yeah, Ares, so he... and his son, which would be Rhaegar, and the uh, children, and his children. Yeah. So, 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 Aemon is to them, respectively, a great uncle, a great great uncle, and a great 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 uncle. Sure. Yes, that sounds right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and like I yeah. said at the very beginning, I think he's both talking about Robert's rebellion, and some probably about. Ares poor Being behavior as a, a lunatic. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. But then the yeah, and, and and as I said, also Rhaegar's behavior possibly. Yeah, right, yes. But then the very next line he says uh but they cut down his brother's poor grandson, son and little children. So he used the term poor grandson when he's referring to Ares. Right. So so maybe it's actually more Rhaegar than Egan, uh than Ares that he's talking about. Because because Ares was considered to be mad. But did he, did he do things publicly that would have made it to uh, to the wall that proved he was mad? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, you would. Everybody think... who was there at King's Landing was terrified of him and thought he was a nutcase and awful. Yeah, but firing Tywin Lannister as the hand of the king doesn't seem like it's that crazy, right? We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Audible. To get a free audiobook or two if you're an Amazon Prime member, go to our exclusive URL, audibletrial.com slash ghostsherrenhall. You can find the link in our show notes. Yeah, his his behavior was getting more and more bizarre, but I don't know that that would have registered to right. his great uncle. But Rhaegar kidnapping the betrothed of another lord and uh, dishonoring his wife. Yeah, right. That that's maybe so. Maybe, that might have been embarrassing. Maybe bit of bit of disgrace yeah. there. W- one of the things that's interesting about this is Aemon is the owner of the ravens, so John has people sort of protecting him from the news that the ravens are bringing in. But Aemon didn't have that, apart from perhaps the person reading the letter for him. Who maybe was like, but 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 does everybody know? Is it widely known who he is? No one had mentioned it to John previously. Yeah, you're right. 
Yeah. I don't know. So you can imagine some because yeah. they don't because he's a maester. He doesn't have no longer technically has a last, a name. last name. So mm-hmm. you know these a lot of these folks will be young and probably a, most of them are uneducated. They probably have no idea who yeah. Maester Aemon truly is. Yeah, yeah. So you can sort of imagine sort of Clydus or someone like that reading out these letters about the downfall of House Targaryen and laughing and joking kind of thing. Maybe. Meanwhile. Yeah. Aemon is like, <laughs> good point. Yeah, and as a Targaryen, I was wondering how Aemon would feel about Ned and his role in Robert's Rebellion. I mean, we know, and he's got to know it at some level that Ned is a very honorable, honest man, which you'd think would be traits that Aemon, as another honest and honorable man, would uh, appreciate. But at the same time, he's a key factor in the downfall of his house right but but again then that also that goes back to what did he feel brought dishonor on his house if it's Rhaegar's actions he probably forgives robert and ned for what they did yeah because he's like you know what they brought this on themselves Rhaegar brought this on our house by doing what he should not have done yeah i could see aemon having that kind of philosophy on it yeah i wondered if maybe john was starstruck because Way back in John 1, he mentions that uh, Darren Targaryen, the young dragon, is was his hero. And Darren Targaryen is cousins with Aemon the Dragon Knight. And Aemon the Dragon Knight is Maester Aemon's namesake. So, right, but, 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 he's, but he's, uh, he's an ancestor. Yes, right? yes. I mean, it's like a long way back, right? right yeah, right. but he was named after him anyway. Yeah, yeah. So... To background, tell me what the other two tests of Maester Aemon were. I, I totally get the third one, but I don't know what the other two are. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to do that in a bit of a long-winded way. He, I'm going to take you through his no, life. No, not you. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the, the, listeners... the audience will not believe that this is going to happen. I wonder if the listeners have become uh, as aware as you and Stacey are about my long-winded uh, stories. the the few we have left definitely (laughs) the ones we've lost for sure (laughs) so i'm just going to take you through maester aemon's life and and as we go through we'll pick out what we think the uh the other two issues might be okay so maester aemon was born aemon targaryen and he is the third son of king makar targaryen and his wife diana dane Hey, not incest. Right, exactly, yeah. And he's the one, Aemon, is the one as who, as a boy, gave his younger brother Aegon the nickname Egg. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So why would the son of a Targaryen prince become a maester? You ask? Or I ask? I do, you? I ask, I ask. <laughs> well, his uncle, King Darren II, had four sons, and they all had sons. And King Darren thought it was dangerous to have too many heirs. So at the ripe old age of about nine or ten, Aemon was sent to the Citadel. And like Aemon says in this chapter, maesters give up their last names along with claims to lands and titles. So there goes uh, any heir issues you have to worry about with Aemon. He spent the next nine or ten years forging his chain and completed his studies as a maester at age 19. After a string of unexpected deaths in the family, his father Maker became king, and his father summoned Aemon and his brothers to court, 
However, Eamon was concerned that his presence on the small council would displace the current Grand Maester. So instead, Eamon went to Dragonstone to serve his oldest brother, Prince Darren, until Darren died of the pox. After his father Makar's death in 233 AC, a great council was called to name an heir. As Eamon was a maester, the next man up was his younger brother Aegon. However, some of the lords thought Prince Aegon to be half a peasant, as he'd spent much of his life traveling Westeros with a squire, as a squire to a hedge knight. Here we get to a possible candidate for one of his vow tests that he mentioned. Oh, yes, because he could give up his maesterhood to become king. Well, exactly. There was a suggestion that Aemon could be released from his maester vows and named king. Aemon, of course, as we know now, refused the offer, and his brother became King Aegon V. And to prevent any further questions about Aemon's eligibility to rule, he doubled down on the vows and chose to join the Night's Watch. So now he's got two level of vows to uh, yeah. <laughs> keep him tied down. Belt and braces. Yep. All this happened when he was about 35. So that feels like a solid candidate to me for the prime of his manhood test. He mentions one was when he was in his youth, one in the prime of his manhood, and one when he was an old man. So this one feels like the prime of his manhood. Age 35, that's about prime of your manhood right there. So the third test, as an old man, seems pretty obvious. Him hearing news of the fall of his house during Robert's Rebellion, or as he might refer to it, the War of the Usurper. As for the first in his youth, that has not been revealed yet, as best I can tell. However, as he spent his youth studying to become a maester, I'm guessing it might have something to do with the love of a woman, because... He mentions in this chapter, what's honor compared to a woman's love? What's duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? Which to me feels like uh, pretty personal examples. But yeah, yeah. But none of them have so, been revealed so, yet. So these are just my guesses at what he's referring to. Okay. Is that literally true, those guesses, or do you actually know? No, I don't know. These are okay. just guesses. Well, I have one other interpretation here then. Maybe when he was called to displace the maester on the small council, he saw that as a sort of like a betrayal of his vows. That if he accepted that, that in some way, I don't know exactly what the maester's vows are, but I wonder if displacing a more senior maester just because of your family name would be a betrayal of his vows. In some yeah. Way. So, and, and that would, would be when he was 19, which would be in his youth, you know. Well, he was a little older than that because he didn't go directly. It didn't happen oh. directly as he graduated from the Citadel. But still, I see. he would have been a, a young man. I don't know about necessarily yes. the prime of his youth. I mean, right. I, don't, but, I mean, the prime of his manhood. But, but I mean, to have vows, to, to have tests of your vows, you have to have made some vows. But I guess I guess you make the vows as a maester quite young, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, people do go to the Citadel and then not finish their training and just yeah. go off and live their lives. So, yeah. But I feel like maybe while he was at the Citadel, maybe he fell in love with a woman and had to decide between pursuing his maester's chain or going off and, you know, marrying this woman and having children with her. Just totally a guess, just because I can't really think of 
another thing that would have happened in his youth. Maybe it's something that, you know, has nothing to do with any of that. Yeah. So, um, well, that's very good. I know. I, I feel like the mystery is not solved, but at least we have plausible reasons why he said he was tested three times. Right. So comparison with the television show, uh, this one is very close in every facet. Uh, the first conversation with Mormont is there pretty much verbatim. He sent Alistair Thorne away with Jaffa Flowers' hand. He gives him the reconstituted blade. Everything's the same. What The only thing we don't really get is John's sort of like thoughts about conflict over accepting this sword when he dreamed of the other sword. So, you know, I mean, that's that's hard to put in the television right. show. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, does, he, yeah. does he act with more gratitude? Does he seem genuinely excited about being given Longclaw? Uh, yeah, well, more than, less than excited, more sort of like gobsmacked. You know, oh, like, okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I did not... I don't deserve this. Um, I think we just caught a bark from one of my dogs. That will just have to stay. <laughs> um, it was Penny. Because she's course. the one who barks. Yeah. She's Pennies crazy. do that. Um, I got elephants and then marching the, up above my head that the yeah. listeners are probably going to be like, "What? who's marching around during this podcast? <laughs> it's my family. And then the, the next scene, uh, I, I have a bit of a complaint here because, because the boys... Pip and Gren and the others, they used to have a little bit more character. Now they just seem like this sort of like, sort of characterless chorus of John cheerleaders. Now. Yeah, I can see um, what you're saying. At least at the moment. Yeah, but it, it, less so in the book than in the show. In the show, that seems to be all they do is just go, yeah, John, you're all awesome. right. Go, John. Yeah, yeah John. Yeah. And then uh, everything in the conversation with uh, uh, Mr. Raymond is basically there too. Okay. So, I had a piece of pedantry, but I think you were going to refute my pedantry. So, uh, how did the gang know about the sword was going to be my pedantry? It felt like, uh, but, but refute away. (laughs) Well, Halder says, John says, you guys knew? And Halder says, he helped Pate carve the stone for the wolf's head, and that Sam bought the garnets for the wolf's eyes in Moletown. So, okay, okay, they knew something was up anyway. Allow me a rebuttal, if you will. Right, exactly. Just because he's been told to carve a wolf's head on a sword doesn't mean... Now, Now, Mormont has established himself very clearly as someone who does not embellish his commands right. with background information. Right, yeah. He, he did not say, carve a wolf's head onto that thing because I'm giving it as a present to Jon Snow. Yeah. He said... Carve a wolf's head on that thing. Yeah. Make it good. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah, you're right. They would have had to have made a leap of information there. <laughs> right. They would have had to have said, that wolf looks exactly like Ghost. This sword is going to John. <laughs> <laughs> it only looks exactly like Ghost because that's how he carved it. Right. It could have looked like anything. <laughs> Maybe it was the third try. Mormon was like, could you make it look a little bit more like the one that pads around out here? <laughs> you have to have seen him. He's huge. <laughs> only wolf. The only wolf in the whole you, building. You see, what I want you to do is stop using your imagination. <laughs> Just carve the one wolf that you can see. But, I mean, the whole place seems like, I mean, it's kind of funny this chapter in the, how much gossip there is going on. Yeah, everybody, like, you know, like Mormont says, everybody knows everything around here. 
Because right. <laughs> John says, oh, you've had a rave? And he's like, well, how do you know? <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, we can we can wrap this up, right? Yeah, we don't have any news and notes this week. Uh, Not that I so, can um, of anything you think of. Yeah. No. All right. Then let's... No, I'd, have to, I'd have to pay attention to the wires. <laughs> I rely on you for that. Well, then let's move right so on to conclusion. conclusion. Yeah. John, uh, John's been forgiven, and he has a shiny new sword to uh, to prove it. He does indeed. And he's he's got uh, very mixed feelings about this sword. And uh, on one hand, I, I get the, the issue that he's facing is not the sword he wanted. And the fact that he is who he is means he'll never have the sword that he wanted. But this is a nice sword too. <laughs> yeah. It's a very nice yeah. sword. And, and 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 he himself says, I you know, although I dreamt of the sword, I didn't really want it. I felt bad for dreaming about right, it. Right, you know? yeah. <laughs> well now you've got a, a replacement just as good, you know? Yeah, exactly. But that's not the only good news he got in this chapter. He got the as he refers to it, even better news that Alistair Thorne is out of the picture, at least for the moment. So Ding Dong, yeah, the witch yeah. is dead. Exactly, or gone to King's Landing yeah. with a hand. Right. Yeah. One or the other. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that might allow him to sort of like rebuild his reputation and sort of like, you know, he's he's going to have a period of time where everything he does doesn't get critiqued and laughed at by a senior person. So, um, yeah. This, this should allow him to cement his position within the Night's Watch, I would assume. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Stark still missing, still a cause of concern. Yeah, I think folks, have, maybe except for Mormont, Mormont keeps sending people out looking for him, but I think even John's starting to accept the idea that he might be dead. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he's not coming back. <laughs> As we've learned. <laughs> I think that's what uh, what Dywin and Hake were out there trying to determine was that there was a uh, a, a white Benjen Stark wandering around out there. So, uh, and, the, and the other troubling news for John is that his brother Rob is riding south. Um, and this news reached him despite the best efforts of Maester Raymond and uh, Lord Commander Mormont to keep that news from John because they don't want John to break his vows. As news seems to do at the Night's Watch. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? Again, you got nothing else. Gossip will fill the time. Exactly. Yeah. It's only only so many uh, chores you can do up there without a little entertainment, which is pretty much all they got is gossip. <laughs> but yeah, John's feeling... He's feeling like... He should be doing something, I think. He's feeling like his brother is riding south in defense of their father, and he's just sitting around at Castle Black doing nothing, and he feels like a coward because of it. Which is not true. He's well, taken a vow. There's nothing he can do. I'm yeah. sure if he hadn't taken a vow, if he'd been in Winterfell, and Rob said, I'm calling the banners, John would said, let's do it. I'm, I'm here by yeah. your side. If, uh, I mean, if he was just... If if he was just shoveling the stables at, uh, I've forgotten where he is. He's at. The, I keep saying the wall. Castle Black. He's at Castle Black. If he was just shoveling the stables at Castle Black, you could sort of like have more sympathy for his desire to go and help. But 
all hell has broken loose. Right. I mean, the gates of hell have opened. <laughs> the dead walk the earth. You know, I mean, like you, you may have some significant responsibilities right where you are. Yeah. The... And, and long term, those might be more important than what's going on south of you. Yeah, that's what OSHA tried to tell Rob: is your fight's not to the south, your fight's to the north. Right. So. Right. Indeed. Indeed. So, uh, but Eamon gives John the, just the right pep talk, including. Uh, uh, basically, I know how you feel. I know you don't know that I know how you feel, but really, I do know how you feel because I'm Eamon Targaryen. Yeah, <laughs> as as you put it, mic drop. I mean, what, what more do you need to say <laughs> after that? That's it. Yeah. Conversation over. If I can do it, I'm going you nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Did you have one more thing to say? Then? No, I was no, I was just going to say um, gonna... it's cool that we now know. Who Aemon Targaryen? Uh, that who Maester Aemon is. It's been a long wait for uh, for this to be revealed. For those of us who knew already, yes. yes. So it's cool that that it's I, out there. I would like to say that I did remember. All right, this was not a surprise to me. <laughs> I was. You dreamt it, in fact. So, yeah. <laughs> cheeky. Alright, so as always, you can reach us at... This was another thing that I couldn't remember yesterday without it written down in front of me. I couldn't remember our email address. It's right. You took about three tries at it. You got it right the first time, and then you second-guessed yourself and had to go back and do it a third time. You can reach us at ghost.harrenhall at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at ghostharrenhall. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Yes, I apologize. Our social media accounts haven't been... I haven't been updating them as much as uh, I used to. I've been a little busy, but I promise I'll get back to it as soon as I can. Uh, yes, and if you please would, would go out and um, give us a rate or a review, we would very much appreciate it. If you'd, if you'd leave us a review, that would be amazing. If you don't have time, if you could just uh, leave us a five-star rate, we certainly would appreciate that very much as well. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.